This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Welcome to this very special evening at the Australian Museum. I'm Kim McKay, the Director and CEO of the Museum, and it's wonderful to see you all tonight. Uh, This is one of our most special nights of the year where we recognise outstanding science and scientists at the Australian Museum. I'd like to start tonight by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land we're gathered on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. And also to remind us all that it's incredibly important that we acknowledge the traditional owners here at the Australian Museum as we are the custodians of one of the most significant Indigenous collections in the nation. There are some special people with us tonight. We are all special, actually. Uh, But some I just want to call out first to say thanks for coming. Now, the person I picked to thank first, because I've decided he's the most wily character I've ever met. That's Professor Frank Talbot, um, who, of course, is a former director of the Australian Museum, a former director of the Smithsonian Natural History Museum in America, and Cal Academy, many, many great achievements in Frank's life. But the extraordinary thing is, is that Frank received this award last year for his incredible contribution to museums and museum science and also founding the Australian Museum Lizard Island Research Station up on the top of the Great Barrier Reef back in 1973. And yet he's managed to sneak his way in again as an award recipient this year, which I'm absolutely thrilled about too. And of course, Frank's here with Suzette tonight who has done so much of her scientific work alongside Frank over the years too. So welcome to you both. Also, the wonderful Professor Merlin Crossley, who is the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Education at the University of New South Wales. He's also a member of the Australian Museum uh, Trust. And as a board member there, he's responsible for science, of course, and our science strategy and many other things. And he's a wonderful, encouraging supporter of the museum at all times. So thank you, Merlin, for making time to come and spend with us again, because he was here yesterday when we were kicking off the Science Festival. Uh, Also, I'd really like to acknowledge someone who's become somewhat of a new friend of the museum, US Consul General Valerie Fowler, and her husband Chip is here tonight as well. Thank you, Chip, for coming to accompany her, keep her out of trouble. Um, We worked with Valerie on Vice President Pence's visit to the museum earlier this year. Also, I'd like to acknowledge the new Swiss Consul General to Sydney, Bernadette Hunkler-Brown. Sorry, I didn't get to meet you. Oh, there you are. Lovely to meet you, Bernadette. Well, we'll talk after. Thank you so much for coming as well. I really appreciate it. A colleague of mine in this wonderful world of state government institutions is the brilliant Cameron Kerr, who's the director and CEO at the Taronga Zoo, Taronga Conservation Society. Welcome, Cam. It's good to have you in our house. And also the wonderful Lord Howe Island board member John King is with us tonight. And also I think Ian Hutton is here too, who is of course the curator of the Lord Howe Island Museum. And it's great to have your support and presence this evening. Alastair McLeod, who's a great trustee of our foundation, and of course the foundation was so played such a special role in supporting our expedition to Lord Howe Island this year that we're going to hear about later tonight. And last but not least, and if I haven't mentioned you, it's just because you'll be mentioned soon, I'm sure, because all of our award recipients 
uh, many of them are here in the room tonight. But Dr. Rebecca Johnson, the director of AMRI, is here as well, and she's going to talk to you a bit about AMRI's achievements. And of course, lots of our scientists are here, museum staff, past museum staff, uh, and those who are receiving awards and their families tonight. So thank you all for coming. Now, we started presenting this award just back in 2014 when we first called the Australian Museum Research Institute by that title. Oh, one person I wanted to acknowledge, who I did see walk in, sorry. Um, the Honourable Bob Devis, who used to be the Minister for the Environment. Where, where did, there you are, Bob, up there. Thank you so much for coming back. Bob, of course, was instrumental in building the Amory Building. I think it was finished in 2007, and thank you so much for your ongoing support and for coming along still to the museum. We really appreciate it. Uh, so what I was going to say, we started presenting this award in 2014 to a person or a group who had made a significant contribution to museum science and biodiversity conservation. Now, the first recipient was the extraordinary Tim Flannery in 2014. And Tim, of course, had um, worked at the Australian Museum for about 10 years as head of mammalian biology here. And then he went on, of course, to carve out not just a media career in communicating science, but also, of course, advocating for climate change and then became Australian of the Year. And I was so excited that Tim was getting this award. The next day, I got so much hate mail uh, from around the country from very strange individuals, and I responded to it all uh, because in a very honest and open way of saying, you know, we have awarded this to Tim not because of his um, beliefs, uh, well, his scientific rigour around climate change, but because of the work he did here at the museum where he discovered so many new species. And you know, most of the people wrote back to me and said, oh, thank you for explaining that. You know, but it did show, show me that at least people were reading some of the press about what the museum was doing, which is a good thing. Uh, our second recipient was Dr. Robin Williams, uh, ABC broadcaster, just a, a wonderful individual and a former president of the Australian Museum. And he was a very worthwhile recipient and he gave a lovely address about what he'd done to communicate science. Um, and of course then last year, as I mentioned, Frank Talbot for his amazing contributions, especially around the founding of Lizard Island. So this is our 190th year at the Australian Museum. Uh, we've been on this site, I think, for about 167 years. So 190 years in Australia in white settlement terms is a long time, not so long in uh, traditional Aboriginal times. But in that 190 years, this institution has achieved a great deal. We've been celebrating all year and the way a museum should celebrate. We kicked off the year with the wonderful Sir David Attenborough who visited us and he uh, remarked on the significance of this institution. And uh, yesterday Merlin made some remarks about that. You can repeat some of those if you like because having Sir David here was a wonderful way to start this year. And then the other really big thing we did next was, of course, Mount the Lord Howe Island Expedition, where 22 of the Australian Museum's current scientists went up there to take another benchmark study about what is happening on the island and found some new species, and we're going to hear from some of those people tonight as well. Lord Howe is a place quite dear to my heart. I've visited there many, many times, and it's a very special part of Australia. And it's wonderful that this institution has had such a long history there. 
And of course, tonight we're going to award those people who were involved in the 1971 expedition and uh, who, of course, did most of the research work to try and acquire that World Heritage listing for Lord Howe Island, which has been so important to its future. Um, we'll soon be hosting the Eureka Prizes, the Oscars of Science, at the end of this month, as we do each year, which has now just grown and grown and is the most incredible awards night. And in November, we'll be launching another 190th project, a national citizen science project called Frog ID. I'm not going to tell you too much about it yet, but we want to engage people right across Australia, every age group, using uh, that wonderful piece of technology that's in the palm of our hands to try and monitor frog species across the country. And Jodie Rowley and Paul Flemons are sitting up there, both grinning and looking slightly stressed when I talk about it, because they're, they're both behind this project in a great way, and it's going to give us some great insight. We've got over, I think, Jodie, 260 species of frogs in Australia in this project. Hopefully we'll not just uncover more, but tell us what's happening to that indicator species in the future. Uh, the Sydney Science Festival is on now, and uh, this week, next week, and this Saturday, we'll have a, in total about 10,000 school children and many parents here at the museum experiencing science at the Science Fair. And uh, yesterday when we kicked that off, you should have seen uh, all the little faces so excited, and that was just our scientists. Um, no, the, the children who were here were just having the most magnificent time. And of course, the other big thing we're doing pretty soon is opening the Long Gallery uh, after a major restoration. And it's opening mid-October and looking absolutely spectacular. So you'll have to uh, wait to see that very soon. But it really is going to, I think, provide a, a wonderful new experience for Sydney siders and visitors to the museum. We're showcasing uh, 200 treasures of the Australian Museum in there. 100 are objects chosen by Dr. Peter Emmett, a curator, and they're entangled with about 600 other objects. So this gallery will really reveal a lot about our collections. And of course, that is why museums do exist. Uh, those collections inform, tell us a lot about what happened in the past, and they tell us a lot about what's happening now, but also they help inform the future as well. And I was just at a, a conference in, uh, Hong Kong, and the head of the Smithsonian was saying to me, the head of the Smithsonian Natural History Museum, Kirk Johnson, was saying that of the 59 great natural science museums in the world, and this museum is ranked 34th on that list, the 59, he, they believe that, or the North American, the Northern Hemisphere museums believe that uh, they hold over 90% of everything that's been found on Earth. So it's sort of like where the Museums become that arc of humanity. And uh, the museums globally, those 59 museums, we're now working on um, an awareness campaign about that, about the, the real role for the future of these museums. And, and this, not just the stories that can be unfolded in our collections, but also the scientific knowledge that can be discovered in them. And that's what happens here every day. And Rebecca is going to talk a little bit about that soon. So. I'm really pretty excited about our 190th year and all the, the things we're trying to achieve. And I know you will be too when you see the Long Gallery very soon. So after the presentation of the awards, we're going to have a panel discussion with some of the scientists who participated in this year's Lord Howe Island expedition. 
And then we all get to go and have wonderful drinks and lots of food outside, so you do get fed. So just be patient, uh, and we'll get to that good part soon. So now it's time, though, that I introduce Professor Merlin Crossley to announce the winners of the 2017 Lifetime Achievement Award for Amri. Merlin. Thank you so much, Kim. It's a real thrill to be here tonight. Although, when I look up there, I feel like running away to sea. And people, my grandfather used to say worse things happen at sea, but at the Australian Museum, it seems some of the very best things happen at sea. And the Australian Museum's a living monument to science, but we're also a guardian of our history, and we make these awards, the Australian Museum Research Institute Lifetime Achievement Awards each year to recognise the most seminal contributions to our history and to honour those who've made lasting contributions to Australia and its future. So tonight, we are honouring members of the 1971 survey team and members of the 1973 group of marine biologists who went to the island. And the report that they produced, which I was emailed and uh, read last night, and it's a wonderfully comprehensive, but quite short report actually, uh, but comprehensive, it led to Lord Howe Island being listed as a World Heritage Site. It led to a transformation in the management of the island and we owe the people who did the work that has backed up the conservation of the island a huge debt of gratitude. Now I'll give a full list of the members of the survey team in a moment, but I just mentioned a few names that I recognised at once. I recognise the name Harry Recker because he's the first name on this report that I have. And then there's, he was a, research, a senior research scientist at the museum at the time. Then there's Stephen Clark, who was assistant curator at the museum. He's the second author. I also recognised a name which will be known to most of you, Pat Hutchins. I find it hard to believe that Pat, who I know has very recently been surveying the marine worms of Lizard Island, I can't believe she was on the 1971 survey team. She must have been a teenager at the time. And I noticed the wily name of Frank Talbot on the list. As Kim mentioned, Frank's already received one Lifetime Achievement Award. So Frank's a bit like a cat with many lives. I don't know how many more that you will receive, Frank. It's interesting. I know you came to us from Africa. And I was thinking, I once read a book about Africa and it talked about how Cecil Rhodes was determined to build a railway from Cairo to the Cape. And he was asked, why did he want to build a railway from Cairo to the Cape? He said, they both begin with the letter C, it sounds great. And I know that Frank has built a scientific highway from Lizard to Lord Howe. And they both begin with L. And I know that you've also worked at One Tree and also Heron Island and I'm sure many other coastal areas in Australia too. So others who were involved in this important work, Phil Coleman, an expert on land scales, snails at the Australian Museum. Mike Gray, who worked on spiders at the Australian Museum. Doug Hosey, who's here tonight, an expert on fish from the Australian Museum. David McAlpine, an entomologist from the Australian Museum. John Paxton, who's here, another fish expert from the Australian Museum. John Pickard, 
a plant ecologist from the Royal Botanic Gardens. It's important. Uh, Amory today collaborates with people from the gardens, from CSIRO, from universities, and the history of collaboration between the museum and the gardens has gone on for many years and it's still going strong. Winston Ponder, an expert on mollusks from the Australian Museum. Jaimo Possamentier, an ecologist from the Australian Museum. Tony Rod, a botanist from the Botanic Gardens. And then there are four members of the team who are no longer with us. So we should remember John Disney of the Australian Museum who did vital work on wood hens, those uh, birds which were almost extinct, but through careful management and a breeding project uh, now quite stable. Jeff Holloway, an entomologist from the Australian Museum. Lawrence Johnston, a botanist from the Royal Botanic Gardens and Courtney Smithers, an entomologist from the Australian Museum. Now, as I said, I read this report last night, and I also read a little bit, as one does, found some more background information on Lord Howe. And I'll just, some of you will know all this, but I found it so fascinating, I can't help but go over it. 1788, Governor Philip sent a boat to Norfolk Island, and they discovered Lord Howe Island on the way, and on the way back, they claimed it for the British Empire. That's the way things were done in those days. It was uninhabited. It was first settled in 1834. The first survey work, any scientific work done on it in 1851, and the papers were lodged in the Australian Museum describing plants and fish, and some of those were collected. Then in 1869, there was the report of a murder on the island, and a magistrate was dispatched and scientists at the Australian Museum and the Royal Botanic Gardens, as they remain today, always ready for an adventure, took the opportunity to join this punitive expedition or judicial expedition. We have been in the division of the judiciary, I think, in the state government at some stage. Uh, and they described the plants, animals, geology of the islands. Uh, it's towering basalts, it's sedimentary rocks, and in the rocks they found horned turtle fossils. There was another combined museum gardens exhibition 1882. By now the museum was clearly addicted to visiting Lord Howe and there was yet another official exhibition in 1887. And then there was the Wrecker survey of 1971. And what did it tell us? It told us this is a natural history paradise. It's, there should be a reserve and it did end up being listed as a World Heritage Site. It also told us the usual story of the introduction of exotic animals that had a devastating impact on the ecology of the islands. Goats, pigs, cats, mice. In 1919, the SS Macambo was wrecked and rats were taken to the island. So what did people do to eliminate the rats? They introduced Tasmanian owls. And the Tasmanian owls, Harry reported in the report, were now preying on native birds. By the time the 1971 group arrived, about half of the unique bird species had been wiped out. The wood hen was only surviving uh, in a small region on top of Mount Gower. And the report recommended studying the life history of wood hens in detail so that they could be properly, the knowledge would be there to preserve them. And it's fantastic that that was achieved. Wecker's report discussed the opportunity to remove pigs and goats 
gave measured advice on the handling of cats, rats, mice, owls, and all the introduced plants. It explained how cattle grazing was the main factor preventing thatch and curly palm regeneration and ex exonerated the mutton birds which had been blamed uh, for the decline of the palm trees. And Harry recommended a large nature reserve on the island and said that camping on the summit should be completely outlawed except for scientists who should still be allowed to camp up there. <laughs> I thought that was a very good one. And Harry uh, acknowledged in his report, in the, I even read the acknowledgest, he gave thanks to Judy Recker for contributing to the paperwork. So everyone was included in this. As has been mentioned, the Australian Ma Museum led another group to Lord Howe Island this year. Now I haven't read their report. Science is so much part of our everyday life. I haven't read their report yet, and it hasn't won a Lifetime Achievement Award yet, but it might. And I re read that they, I did hear that they discovered some snails, which were thought to be extinct, checked on whale skeletons, and they observed the phasmids on Ball's Pyramid. Ball's Pyramids was named after Lieutenant Ball, who first discovered the island and claimed it for the empire. So, without further ado, I want to express my gratitude to the 1971 team that did such a superb job in surveying the island, describing it, and that led to the listing and the preservation of this iconic island for future generations. So congratulations to all the members of the team who are here tonight. And now, Kim will come up and we'll, I'll read out the names and if we could ask each of the people who, uh, whose names are being able to come out and accept their award in person. So the first person on my list is Doug Hosey. So it's a bit like a graduation now. The second person, John Pickard. And the third, the one and only, Frank Talbot. And their fourth, Winston Ponder. And now, Harry Recker himself. Come on down, Harry. And last but not least, John Paxton. Also from Australia. Okay, thanks, that's my bit done. Now I hand over to someone else, Rebecca, the director of the Australian Museum Research Institute. Thanks, Rebecca. Did you know that in 2016, there were 18,000 new species of plants and animals new to, identified as new to science? I, I couldn't help but show this one. <laughs> this is the uh, sorting hat spider. I thought this was pretty fantastic. This was uh, I described by an Indian group and uh, obviously not one of ours, but a really fantastic example of, first of all, something that's quite literal. Uh, even the species name is very hum humorous. And um, 
It's also a great example of the importance of having to of communicating our science and and capturing the pe the, the the public's attention through giving something a really cool name. Not to mention, it really does look like the Sorting Hat for those Harry Potter nerds amongst us. Something that's a little bit closer to home for us was a new species of frog, a very, very beautiful tree frog, in fact, so beautiful that J Jodie chose to call it that. Jodie and her colleagues described this species in 2016 as well, something that we're very proud of. And Kim mentioned a very exciting frog project that we have coming up. You will probably see this frog featuring quite a bit. And something that wasn't done this year, but something that will, will no doubt feature next year as one of the species of 2017. This is the infamous semi-slug that was named after Sir David Attenborough by our scientists here, Frank Kohler and Isabel Hyman. And in fact, it's, it's such a momentous day. Today is the day that the records of the Australian Museum came out that actually names this species, which is pretty exciting. And it was quite a special moment earlier this year when Sir David Attenborough visited us. He was genuinely enraptured to speak to Frank and Isabel and learn about this slug. And he was so excited to have a slug named after him. <laughs> and we were very excited to do it, weren't we, Frank and Isabel? <laughs> Um, so, the Australian Museum in, in 2016 named 199 new species with, with our research associates, of which we have 70. And this actually contributed 1% of all of the new species that, that were described to science in 2016. And we only do animals. Brett, Brett Sumrall, who's here today, his group do plants. So, so Kim, imagine if we had more scientists. Imagine how much more we could do. But I think it's pretty fantastic that... Exactly. A, that a fairly small institution like ourselves, very eminent, but we've contributed 1% of the new known biodiversity to the world in the last 12 months, which is something that we're so incredibly proud of. And one of the things that's is of note is that in so many cases these species existed in museums already. They'd been sitting there for decades in some cases, just waiting for a scientist with the right skills and with the right eye to discover them and give them a new name. And even more exciting and something that is very relevant to what we're, we're here to, to, uh, to support and to honour tonight is that in many cases once these things were described, they then went on to receive the conservation attention that they deserved. And so genuine outcomes and contributions to improving our world come from this kind of science. Of course, describing new species is not all that we do at the Australian Museum, but it is a very tangible and quite special way of describing the work that we do and the significance that it holds. And in addition to that, it is Science Month. So we are celebrating education and many of the scientists in the room tonight are also contributing to that education and the important aspect of science communication where we're communicating to the next generation why it is so cool to be able to find a slug in our collection, decide it's different and name it after David Attenborough. That is pretty, pretty fantastic. In addition to that, tonight we're celebrating collaboration. And if you're not a scientist in the room from the Australian Museum, you're very likely to be a collaborator 
with us at the Australian Museum Research Institute. Without, it is not possible to do what we do without collaborations. We've already heard about the incredibly long and enduring collaboration we've had with the Botanic Gardens pretty much since we were established. We've seen the results of the wonderful collaboration that led to the World Heritage listing of Lord Howe Island. In addition to that, we've got some really exciting new collaborations that we have started th this year, including the Oz Mammal Genomes Project, where us, along with many other partners, are involved in sequencing representatives of every single species of Australian mammal so that we can understand them and then we can conserve them. And this is a very exciting project for museums because we hold all of that biodiversity. In addition to that, we're very honoured to be part of the Centre of Excellence that was just announced that's led by the University of Wollongong. And this is something that helps us understand how, when humans arrived, how they arrived in Australia and the very long, continuous and enduring history that we have because this, this deep understanding is a very important thing for our country and particularly for our, the Aboriginal Australians who have been here for many, many tens of thousands of years. And finally, we're very, really excited to establish some new imaging partners, partnerships. The Australian government has invested a huge amount into imaging in Australia. And this is the super exciting for museums because we get to image things and see them from the inside out without having to dissect them. This is, this is particularly exciting when you're not wanting to dissect something that is a, a type specimen, something that's scientifically very valuable. But also we get to look through them, we get to see their skeletal structure, we get to rotate them, we get to 3D print them. And these are some of the really exciting partnerships that we have established this year and, and we look forward to, to expanding when, as the years go on. But tonight we're here to celebrate the collaboration that is Lord Howe Island and it's my duty now to introduce the panel who are going to participate tonight. Um, I'd, I'd also like to acknowledge all of the scientists that are in the room tonight who have contributed to the current expedition that we're going to hear a lot about and also the past expeditions. I'd also like to acknowledge Paul Flemons and his team for coordinating the expedition from, from this year. It is no, no small feat to coordinate an expedition of many teams and uh, we very much appreciate the work of his team. I'd also like to acknowledge Alec, Alex Nuttall who's done a wonderful job of putting tonight together. Thanks Alex. So now I'm going to welcome the panel to the come and sit down as I call your name. Firstly, I would like to call Dr. Frank Kohler, our land snail specialist who was part of the Lord Howe Island expedition and he also went to Ball's Pyramid and I'm, I've seen some photos um, and I'm very much looking forward to hearing what Frank has to say about that. Thanks, Frank. Next, I'd like to welcome Dr. Sandy Ingleby. She's the, the manager of the terrestrial vertebrates collections. Sandy's been to Lord Howe Island a couple of times. She's a mammal expert, and she was also a very important part of the team that went to this year's expedition. I would now like to ask Dr. Harry Recker, the author of the Wrecker Report to come up to the stage. Harry is um, not only a retired ecologist and museum scientist, but um, he's always full of interesting stories. He, he's often controversial. And um, he, he has the, the honor of leading this very important report that directly contributed to the World Heritage Listing of Lord Howe Island. And of course, the panel is going to be 
mediated by our very own CEO, Kim McKay. Please welcome Kim to the stage. And I can't really introduce myself, but I promise that I didn't wear these shoes when I was on Lord Howe Island. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Rebecca. Come and take your seat. There you go. Oh, you've dropped a... Never mind. Drop your cards. Thank you so much and thank you to our wonderful panel tonight because I was very jealous I didn't get to go to Lord Howe Island this time. Uh, the team did an amazing job up there. It was a beautifully planned expedition. I don't... I think you had to fill in about 40 risk management reports in your poor Paul. Um, but it was really well planned and... and the results are proving to be very interesting. So I'm just going to start with you, Rebecca, because the Australian Museum and museums in general have a, a tradition of field expeditions. Of course, this very institution was founded around the idea of that some of our first directors had some quite big mishaps on early expeditions. I think one shot himself in the foot uh, and then died <laughs> as a result of that. Um, so. That's how collections were made, through field expeditions. So we've started them back up again at the museum to get our scientists back in the field. What value do you place on that for Amory? I think it's very special to, to have a genuine expedition because it's multidisciplinary. And, and listening to Merlin talk about the impact of that report and, and all of the different findings from that work, you don't get that unless you have all of the different disciplines, and in this particular case, the botanic gardens and also the museum together, so that so that you can see things as an entire ecosystem context. Mm. What's also really special is that Lord Howe Island is the first, I guess, technically the first expedition we ever went on. I don't, I don't think we actually count. Back in the 1860s. Back in the, yeah. I, I think we technically consider it the 1880s as our first one. But, um, but we it's pretty cool that we, we decided yeah. to go along when a murder was being investigated. It's very opportunistic. Um, and and so, so the fact that it was our first ex expedition means that we have this incredibly deep time series of records div of diversity of species, diversity of specimens that we can compare across time. And in fact, uh, some of our scientists just came back last night from the South Pacific and another group have gone out. Do you want to just mention about that expedition? Yeah, so they're, they're um, going on a cruise, which sounds far, far more glamorous than it actually is, uh, with the, led by the Auckland Museum into some areas of the Southwest Pacific that are quite remote, um, very undersurveyed. And this is something that also gets museum people very excited, going into areas that haven't really been, been surveyed particularly thoroughly or if in many cases if not at all because we do love to fill gaps in museums and, and collect things that we don't already have because they become very valuable later on. And so what's in the pipeline do you think? Expedition-wise? Expedition yeah. uh, Solomon Islands. Yeah. That's where we'll be uh, spending a bit of time next year. So we've been going up to the Solomon Islands. We went first last year. Tim Flannery has led this expedition um, with the support of the museum looking for the monkey-faced bat and giant rat up there. In fact, the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands is coming here next week uh, to look at those specimens that we hold in the collection. 
and uh, understand the expedition a bit further. And, and I, I guess that's a really exciting aspect of expeditions to see behaviour changes that happen after the, the, the deep knowledge that is gathered from these expeditions and, and very much so the Solomon Islands is a great example of that in addition to obviously Lord Howe Island being World Heritage listed as on the back of all of these results. The Solomon Islands is, there are genuine conservation zones being set up as a result of the work that, that we're involved in as collaborators there. Now, Harry, you are, I think, the keeper of a lot of knowledge on Lord Howe Island, historically, from your report and also just your general understanding. Do you want to tell us all what, why you think Lord Howe Island is so special and unique? Well, <clears throat> I don't know that Lord Howe Island is any more special or unique than any other remnant of natural vegetation and, and flora, fauna on the Australian continent. We've reached a stage where so little of this continent remains in its natural state. And what remains is extraordinarily difficult to protect, to keep, to maintain. And islands like Lord Howe are, well, they're living museums, if I can use that word. Uh, they are the places where we can save some biodiversity where it's easier to protect that biodiversity. Uh, islands are often described as uh, centers of evolution. They have special attraction to biologists. They have special attraction to humanity. For some reason, people like islands. Maybe because they're small and you can feel secure. You can find the boundaries. But that's what makes Lord Howe special. It's 70% natural area that remains. Most of its biota is retained. You'll find very, very few places that that's the situation. I currently work in the Great Western Woodland in Western Australia, an area vastly larger, 21,000 hectares of oh, 21,000 square hectares of land, uh, much, much larger than Lord Howe the largest remaining temperate woodland in the world. Biodiversity in the great western woodland would dwarf anything on Lord Howe Island, but we have no chance of saving it because it's, a, it's a enriched with minerals, so it becomes a mining area. It's the gold fields of Western Australia. The only way we can save biodiversity is by choosing those areas like Lord Howe where we have some chance of keeping something for future generations. Otherwise, we're going to lose it all. That's what makes Lord Howe important and why it's important for the museum to continue to work there. So, from your, you've been back, I'm assuming. No, I have not been back to Lord Howe since 1972. Oh, really? Oh, really? Maybe we have to get you up there. No, it's unlikely. <laughs> I didn't say I'd go with you or anything. Look, I'm, I've got, I'm going to interject here because <laughs> why didn't I go back to Lord Howe Island? Uh, and why would it be difficult to get me to go back? Running that survey in 71 was not so much running an environmental survey. It was an exercise in politics. Right? They were, why, why was a survey commissioned by the Lord Howe Island Board? It says because the board has responsibilities for the flora and fauna of Lord Howe Island. And they needed to know more about Lord Howe Island in order to manage it properly. 
you talk to other people, and the reason they wanted to do an environmental survey of Lord Howe Island was because, and think back, when was the Rest Point Casino built in, in Hobart? 1971, 70, somewhere around there. And there was a lot of talk about putting a casino on Lord Howe Island. For New South Wales, it would have been an ideal place. You could think all the riffraff could go to Lord Howe Island, they could riot, and you wouldn't have, it wouldn't offend anybody. Now we've got them in Sydney. Uh, the survey of Lord Howe, what I say was a political exercise, while the board didn't quite tell me what recommendations it wanted, it was very clear what in the report was submitted. It didn't like the recommendations. And uh, when I agreed to do the survey, to coordinate the survey, I put some conditions on it. I would, I would select the survey team, and the report had to be published. In those days, the museum staff, the scientists, regularly involved the public and were encouraged by people like Frank Talbot and the board to communicate widely with the public. And I like to talk to people and communicate. So the report had to be public because I'd been in Australia long enough and at the museum long enough to realize that if I did a report on Lord Howe Island advising things that the board might not like, the report would never see the light of day. And of course, that's exactly what happened. And to get the report published, which the board did eventually, I had to threaten to resign, return to the United States, which I guess some people probably would have been happy about, uh, and publish the report myself. And to the, the, the man that we were negotiating with at the, from, the, from Lord Howe Island, the representative of the board, was dumbfounded when I told him, you think I gave you the only copy of the report? <laughs> you gotta be joking, right? So, uh, but the, the, the whole survey, is, you know, you, you think about things. Uh, and I've been thinking about this since I was asked to participate in this this evening. I really need to write all this up because the survey, the 70, 71 survey of Lord Howe Island would make a great episode in Yes Minister or in, or in this Australian broadcasting... Utopia? Utopia yeah. uh, of Canberra bureaucrats. You know, it had, it had everything, me threatening to resign to get the report published. The board refusing to accept my recommendation that the State Planning Authority be involved from the beginning, and then when they got the report and didn't like it, they commissioned one, two, three, a succession of reports until they got one they did like. The first people they asked to do a new report was the State Planning Authority, who simply came out, went to Lord Howe Island, looked at everything and said, the museum report is correct, that's what you should do. And they got six or seven or eight reports in section, in succession, which did the same thing. Other things that would make great television was one of the members of the team smuggling illegally guns onto Lord Howe Island and illegally collecting birds. It was, well, whatever it was, it was a gun, a pistol. I, don't, I never saw it. I never, never knew it was there until I was told by John Disney that he had seized the specimens for the Australian Museum as they were being loaded onto the plane on Lord Howe to be taken back to Australia. 
Events like that made the survey political and interesting and would make great television. And a starring role. <laughs> no, too old. You'd have to get someone young and uh, vigorous. Fantastic. Well, speaking of someone young and vigorous, Frank. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, Frank Kohler, of course, who was part of this expedition most recently. And, Frank, you climbed Ball's Pyramid. I did part not climb well, Ball's well, Pyramid. Well, you were at Ball's Pyramid. <laughs> um, I climbed Mount Gawa and I got up to Gannett Green and I probably one of very few people who had the chance to climb up there. And just, I have to say, just listening to your story um, makes me appreciate much more what you have achieved at the time and that even though we all tend to be a little bit pessimistic about the prospects uh, for many species in terms of conservation, um, obviously, the example of Lord Howe Island actually shows that you have achieved something and that um, the degradation of the island could be stopped and halted to a large degree. And um, thanks to people like you, I was able to go back to that island 46 years later or so and find still everything or almost everything that was there at the time when I was born, in that year, 1971. <laughs> and yeah, it doesn't happen too often to me anymore that I can uh, be cocky about my youth, you know? <laughs> so, um, so, Frank, you were part of the team, though, that identified that the phasmid was still alive on Ball's Pyramid. And that is a collaboration with the Melbourne Zoo. Yes, so we spent uh, almost a week on Boyd's Pyramid. Um, we were allowed to, do, to go there, which uh, to get permission is also not easy uh, because it is a World Heritage Area and uh, it's basically off limits. And um, the reason for us to go to Boyd's Pyramid is to find out what, how the population of, of the endemic phasmid are doing. Uh, there hasn't been much data accumulated in the past, I don't know, 10, 20 years or so. Um, and it was also um, important for the captive population to potentially get some uh, genetic refreshment. Um, so there were, I think we were, how many people were there? Eight or nine of us? So we were with a team of well, semi-professional climbers. Uh, who basically made it uh, all the way up and helped us <laughs> to lift our bodies <laughs> to uh, um, at least to Gannett Green um, looking for the phasmid. And um, they, they needed, because we had a lot of equipment that we had to get on that island, they needed quite a number of days to actually prepare all the ropes going up and, and drag all the supplies up there. So, um, and we searched every accessible part of Boyd's Pyramid and we found, uh, I don't know, remember how many specimens were there? 20? How many? 17, yeah. So, s 17 is not a lot, but given that how inaccessible most parts of Boyd's Pyramid are and how difficult it is to get around, um, there, I think our findings 
suggests that at least there is still a native population out there which is probably, hopefully, healthy and um, gives, you know, hope for the future for that species. And we were also interested to, s to find out whether there might be other species that have gone missing or been lost on the main island due to rat predation and have survived on World's Pyramid. So the other thing I know that a new species of beetle was identified. Yeah, so we found not only one new species, but we found one new beetle species on Boyd's Pyramid. Um, we also found other new species on Lord Howe Island. Um, and I was. What's, <laughs> what's that moment like, Frank? Well, um, I was with our beetle uh, expert on Lord Howe Island, Chris Sweet, who is not here today. And uh, when he, he always collects snails for me. So I, when I see a beetle every now and then, I pick one up and give it to him. So I found one who looked particularly pretty. I thought, oh, I keep that. But it was pretty large, so I didn't expect it to be anything special. And when I gave it, ah, oh, by the way, Chris, I found a beetle. Uh, you know what it is. And he looked at it and said, well, last time that was found was 1888. And since then, it was considered extinct. So there you go. And he went back to the same place and tried to find another specimen. But you know, you have to be special, have yeah. special <laughs> skills to yeah, find Yeah, you have to have that special skill. Yeah, he didn't pay me enough to yeah. get him another one. <laughs> so from your own personal perspective, I mean, being a scientist, you spend a great amount of time in the lab here as well as in the field. What was, what was so special about being part of that expedition to Lord Howe this year? Well, knowing about the history of the place was made it very special. Initially, you know, when people told me, oh, Lord Howe Island is a magic place, it's magnificent, you will like it, and it, it basically raised the stakes for me. I thought, oh, come on, I'm, I'm not that easily excited, you know, I've seen other cool places. But this island has something to it, which... I don't know what you said about how we humans like islands, probably, this secluded place, which is largely intact. I mean, obviously, there's a settlement and you can see the impact of human inhabitation, but there are large parts which are nearly pristine. And to see something, to be able to go there and study these areas is, is special for me. Because I, I don't know, I was always a nature nerd. And I'm so, I feel so privileged that I'm able to do these things and go to these places. And I want to help, try to help pre preserve them. And I think uh, good public relation work is part of conservation. It can't replace conservation, but it, it has to, it can support uh, efforts in conservation. That's right. And we did have a couple of journalists along at different times in the expedition as well to report on it. Uh, some very good drone footage was acquired from that too, I think, of, of you particularly. <laughs> uh, now, Sandy, Don't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, we're not showing it tonight, don't worry. Uh, Sandy, now I kept seeing photographs of you digging on Lord Howell and you were digging up the bones of the skeletons of three whales. Do you want to tell us about that? Indeed, we were. I feel a little bit um, of a ring in here because mammals at Lord Howe Island is actually not known for its mammal diversity. There's only one terrestrial mammal that occurs on the island. In fact, the natives are actually outweighed by you know, the feral terrestrial mammals. 
Um, but there, were, there are quite a diversity of marine mammals that, that pass by and occasionally strand on Lord Howe Island. And um, fortunate for us, in August 2011, three beaked whales, um, they were dense beaked whales, or Blainesville's beaked whales, they're known, stranded on the northern part of the island. And they're quite rare whales, aren't they? Um, beaked whales generally, they're very poorly known. There are around 22 species worldwide, of which about half occur um, in Australian waters. But they're, because they're deep... Um, ocean species, they're rarely seen. So when something strands, it's one of the few opportunities you scientists get to actually study them. And so these, these three pass by. Blainesville is probably one of the more common in the area, but even so, they're still rare. But beaked whales in general account for something like a quarter of all cetacean species, but they're one of the most um, least studied groups of mammals. Um, so these three stranded on the north of the island, and they were thought to be three females. And uh, we always intended to go back and dig them up. But when we heard about the expeditions, this was a perfect opportunity to go and, go and retrieve them. Um, so we did, we, um, we, uh, they were buried in a paddock and we're talking about the scenic beauty of Lord Howe Island. I think our study site, um, it's so beautiful that they actually make uh, placemats and you can buy a placemat in the local shop with, it has our study site on it. Um, so these were buried on a, in a farmer's paddock um, when I say buried, I mean really buried. <laughs> they were, and Rebecca was with us. They were buried three metres down in a, in a very large pit, uh, just at the base of um, the mountains. And um, there they stayed since 2011. So we were hoping that we'd A, be able to find them, and B, that there'd be something left of them. Um, I think Blainsville is particularly interesting for us at the museum because uh, the species was described in 1916, thereabouts, on a based on a specimen in the Paris Museum, uh, and the locality was unknown, so there's no type locality for it. But, um, and the second uh, individual was found in the Seychelles, and the third individual of the species ever recorded was, is here at the Australian Museum, and it was the first full skeleton of that species ever um, discovered, so, and that was in 1870. So it was particularly relevant that we go back and get three more. Um, so, yeah, and that's what we did. And have you had a chance to study them yet? We've uh, spent lots of time, the, the team smiling up there, um, <laughs> Mike Eldridge, Anya Duvlan and Rebecca, and also Richard Major helped as well. We spent a lot of time cleaning them to get them back onto the mainland, and we've now registered them and included them in the collection, and um, they will become part of the, the museum's station collection. Um, we did make a few discoveries. Um, one was that um, it wasn't, in fact, three females. The first one we... We started to dig up, we noticed it was a male, and you can tell because of the, um, the males have a very distinct um, sort of tooth or a tusk on each side of the jaw, which actually uh, projects above the head. They're very unusual species, the big whales, because they, they're suction feeders, so they don't, no longer have functional teeth, they just have these sort of tusks that the males use in um, sort of male yeah, interactions, um, and they feed by suction, they have th pleats in the throat, and so when they um, open their mouth, it creates a suction, so they actually suck in the squid. Um, so we could see from this, this tooth that we, we dug up, one of the first things that we saw, that it was clearly a male. So we, we figured out it was a male and two females, in fact, um, in the pit. Fantastic. Buried in a loving embrace. In this a loving is embrace. how they were described <laughs> to us. They were literally uh, <laughs> dropped, yeah, from a great height. So just to, for those who aren't scientists in the room, not many of you, but... So they understand, when you're researching this, you've got the skeleton back here at the museum, you've cleaned it, you're analysing DNA in 
you, you can do. We, we, we actually did do some gender testing, exactly, because we, um, when, the, when the specimens were first collected, some tissue samples were taken, but we didn't know which uh, tissue samples belonged to which individual. So we could figure out, we knew which one was the male, and we knew that one of the females was smaller than the other, and we had body measurements. So we actually used gender testing, I used the DNA to do gender testing to figure out which tissue sample belonged to which individual. Um, but the bones are particularly useful. Beaked whales, for a long time, was thought there were only 10 species worldwide. And then about 20 years ago, um, a molecular um, study was done using museum specimens. And um, the person was Mer Meryl Dalibut. So she basically doubled the number of beaked whale species around the world based on DNA extracted from museum specimens. So it's probably not the end of the story. There are probably more species out there. And, and these um, specimens will be useful in studies of that nature. So the report on the Lord Howe Island expedition, how's it c coming along? Oh, I feel pressure here. <laughs> no pressure, no. But, you know, uh, that, that's an important uh, aspect that I wanted to raise anyway. I mean, expeditions are an important part of our work, and I think they help also to tie in the public in what we are doing. And, um, however, the actual research takes a long time, you know. So we are looking at... Give me another year or so, and then please remind me. Um, but I think I heard, uh, you told me that your report was also published three years after your expedition. Is that correct? So uh, that would relieve me from some pressure, if, <laughs> if you could confirm no, that. No, it was uh, only 18 months. Oh. <laughs> 18 months, Frank. That was due to delays but in the uh, government printing office. <laughs> I was going to say, that was we in 71, you know, time fast. now progresses much faster. So what you did in 18 months, we will probably need 24 months at least. <laughs> Isn't that the opposite, Frank? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, look, in fairness to Frank, the, the report, our report consisted of two parts. A series of recommendations based upon the environmental survey, which I wrote was fairly quick and easy, got to the point and then a series of reports on some of the biota that people had worked on. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of that material still required further work. It does, it, it does, does yeah. take a long time. So we have, um, I can only s tell you something about landsnets, which is um, the most significant part of biodiversity, if you ask me. And there are certainly or there are very likely still undescribed species in the collection. At least there's material preliminary identified as undescribed. So part of our work that we are currently conducting is to find out whether there are indeed um, undescribed species on Lord Howe Island, and if that is the case, also to describe them. Um, that is important um, to underpin uh, future conservation management. Um, with your report, which was basically the, the foundation to uh, the heritage listing, it was very important to get out recommendations quickly. Uh, as you said, it was a political exercise. Um, we are now living in a different environment, I think, uh, in regards to that there is an understanding what the conservation requirements are, and there are actually a lot of... I mean, they are not undebated, uh, and there are people... but it's, it is known what's required to be done, and the debate is more about well, whether or not it should be implemented. Keep in mind, as you write up your report, that the recommendations that we made have still not been fully implemented. There are still some critical parts of the reserve 
that we recommended that are not in the reserve. Absolutely. And there are, there are other things like buffer zones, which uh, I don't know what National Parks is doing, but I can't read about buffer zones in the plan of management for the Lord Howe Island Reserve. So there's still lots, lots to be done. And there's lots of things to be done with managing the biota. Uh, because I haven't been back there since 71, 72. Anybody that's been there recently? Are there still Norfolk Island pines on the island? <laughs> there are, there are, yes. Well, one of the things we strongly recommended, John Pickard, All right, he, want, he wanted to retain them. I wanted to get rid of them. Why did I want to get rid of them? Because ecologically, they pose as great a threat to the integrity of the environment of Lord Howe Island as do rats and as did pigs and goats. <laughs> we like to see, see the uh, conflict occurring here. It's great. Now, I know some of you might have some questions you'd like to ask of our panel before we break and go and have a refreshment. Do I have a great question? Yes, Hal. Self-interested question. Oh, thanks. A self-interested question. Did anyone on the, uh, the um, uh, Bull's Pyramid group see either or both of the endemic lizards? And if so, how abundant were they? Uh, we've, I remember to have seen plenty of geckos, <laughs> and I'm not quite sure about... Paul, do you remember the other lizard? Sorry, I, I only look for snails, <laughs> but there were plenty of lizards. One um, is a gecko, yeah, one's a yeah. skink. Yeah. And uh, you saw both? Uh, yeah, the skinks, yeah. Yeah, and we've seen they, skinks. They're very abundant? Uh, I think they were, yeah. Okay, I, thanks very much. Yeah, they are. Abundant skinks and geckos, excellent. Another question? Alastair McLeod. Um, so, so various people have referred to the um, population of ferals on the island. Uh, and my question really is around what's been done to control the feral population and what effect that's having on the indigenous life there. Should I answer? Um, well, the big the big elephant in the room here is, is rodents, so mice and rats. And um, goats have been eradicated and um, cats. Pigs and cats. Pigs. But the rodents are the big problem. The owls are still there. Sorry? The owls are still there. The owl is still there, but it's all, yeah. So the rodents, um, there, is a, there is a proposed rodent eradication project which has been worked at, I think, on and off for 10 years, and there have been multiple uh, reports on that, uh, feasibility studies, um, and I'm, I, I'm not sure that I know the current state of affairs, but it's basically still debated whether it's going to go ahead or not, um, because some people are concerned about um, the broadcasting of red bait on the island. I personally think it would be a great opportunity to this, this particular project to get, hopefully get rid of the rodents. Um, similar projects have been successful in other islands in New Zealand and in the Seychelles and have been shown to have 
relatively limited impact on the native species. Um, and the alternative is to continuously bait on the island with only to control the population. And we know that many rodent species develop resistances against the uh, used toxins. And so the outcome of the current status quo uh, is, would be very critical and in the long run probably unsustainable. Given the rugged topography of Lord Howe, uh, it's very, very difficult. It would be very, very difficult to eradicate Rattus Rattus. And, and another problem is even if you are successful with the rats, the mice may are another problem for many species as well. But I guess it's worth a shot. And there have been equally um, geographically complex islands have been successfully eradicated from rats. So I think there is a good chance, it's not a 100% chance, but it's probably more in the 70, 80, 90% chance to get rid at least of one of the two species. Perhaps I might be able to help a little bit there. My name's Barney Nichols. I've been on the board for 12 years. Um, the rodent eradication decision, no go or go, will be made at the board meeting on the 11th or 12th of September. Uh, currently, we are waiting on three approvals from various uh, government agencies, which, because the proposed eradication was um, such a, a debated and divisive topic on the island, we took as many steps as we could to try and uh, garner as much support from the population as possible. And one of those was that we would keep them informed of everything that we did and we would address every one of their concerns. It's now boiled down basically to three. We got the go-ahead the other day from the Office of the Chief Scientist and Engineer regarding human health. Um, the two that we're waiting on now, the two main ones, are one from the EPBC, which we feel quietly confident about. The third one is from the APVMA, and that hit a snag called Barnaby Joyce when they moved the APVMA from Canberra to Armidale just recently. And um, they sent a few of the staff resigned and there's um, uh, some doubt as to whether we'll get it in time. But I can't speak on behalf of the entire board, but I believe if we get these sign-offs um, and these approvals, it will go ahead. Um, we had the... Planning, of course, is going ahead on the basis that uh, um, it may happen, and we've had the helicopter people over there the week before last. Your comment regarding the terrain, um, these helicopter pilots uh, were quite adamant that they could manage that terrain. Um, their biggest concern, I think, is if we get our normal windy July and August. Um, uh, and just another comment you made about getting rid of the pines. I totally agree, and our biggest, uh, our biggest ally there at the moment is CASA, because every time pines grow into the obstacle limitation approach to the airstrip, we have to get rid of them. Unfortunately, the obvious um, solution to build airstrips everywhere is not quite going to work. But that's the updates I can give you on both the uh, rodent eradication and the pine trees. Thank you so much, Barney. That's very appreciated indeed. Uh, one last question. Does anyone have a last question? Of yes. 
this is not a question so much as a confession. I've, I've, <laughs> been, a, I've been a scientist for a long time. Um, I'm not as old as I look. I dime ahead to make me look mature and I'll grow up one day. And that's actually quite relevant because I wasn't there on an expedition. I was there as an ecologist because my boss said to me one day, do you want to go to Lord Howe Island? So I thought about it and thought about it and said yes. Um, and I was basically there to look at the vegetation, map the vegetation, which I did, but I was being paid to have fun. And any scientist that does field work knows what I mean. It's not frivolous, it's creative fun. You do good science and you don't care about what the bastard politicians are doing because you know they're going to shaft you anyway. <laughs> but you go ahead and you do the science the best you can, you put in your report and you think to yourself, damn, we did a good job there and you move on. And then 40 years later, are you sure it's 40 years? 46 years? 40, geez, yeah. we were young then, Harry. 46 years later, I get an award. And when I, when I first heard about this, I was a little bit embarrassed because why would I get an award for having fun? You know, the poor taxpayer has paid me through my entire career to have fun as a scientist. Have we done good? Yes, we did good science, yes. We did things on Lord Howe Island, ended up with a World Heritage Area. Some of my reports have led to national parks. So if there's anybody here who's under the age of 25, there's one. There's one. We see a couple. Okay. There are a if couple. You won't make much money as a scientist, but damn, you'll have a lot of fun. Go for it and you can change things. And who knows, in 45 years' time, you'll get a Lifetime Achievement Award. <laughs> so th thank you very much. Uh, I think we should invite you back to talk at Science Week to inspire all those young kids who are here at the museum at the moment. It's exactly what they need to hear. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Frank Collis, Sandy Ingleby, Harry Recker and Rebecca Johnson. <laughs> and also thank you Merlin Crossley and congratulations to our wonderful Lifetime Achievement Award winners. It's a great honour to have you still associated, some of you very closely, as fellows with the Australian Museum. And uh, I know that we've got a lot to learn still from all of you. And I was watching, I don't know if anyone else saw it last night on the ABC, there was a program about the Voyager uh, space mission, um, which is still going, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. And I had the privilege when I worked at National Geographic to spend a few months at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. and had an insight into that mission, as well as a few the Mars rover ones. But those uh, people who worked on that Voyager mission back in um, the early 70s, and who were quite elderly today, but carried with them such knowledge and were inspiring to listen to. And I think that's a great thing if we can tap into previous scientists at the museum, as well as our current ones. But some of the elders who have a lot to offer. So thank you all very much. And please come and have a drink. Uh, everyone's looking at Mark Eldridge and Rebecca <laughs> feeding. Uh, I don't know if they think they're going to feed the fish. <laughs> um, I don't know if we're looking at Mark's knees or yours, Rebecca, but anyway. Uh, but I want to thank you for coming tonight. And I would like to ask you to stay and chat to people. Uh, we've got some wonderful 
food outside and drink. And thank you to the team here at the museum for organising this evening. Thanks, Alex. And uh, come back again soon. Thank you. This has been an Australian Museum podcast. 